Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This, a podcast where we talk with experts and educators. Welcome to our podcast. We have a returning guest with us today, Dr. Jennifer Moss, who goes by Jenny, right? Yes. She's here again to talk to us about the dark side of motivation, and we're going to talk about controlling teaching. So if you would, take a minute and just introduce yourself. Remind us about your educational background, if you would, please. Sure. Thanks for having me back, Christy. I really love this podcast, and I'm glad to be here again. I am the educational psychology faculty member at Emporia State University in the psych program. And I have my PhD and my master's degrees are in educational psychology. And that is all the things you learn in psych applied to educational settings. And sometimes they could be school, they usually are, but there are people who study um, how people learn in museum settings. How do you learn in clubs, organizations? How do adults learn? Things like that. So it's a pretty broad field, but I'm really interested in studying teachers. I was a K-12 teacher for a while, my life, a good chunk. I've taught everything from a parent and taught music movement, movement program that I started because there wasn't one for my daughter. So I thought, I'll start one. But I did everything from <laughs> them to teaching high school through that, teaching college. And I've even taught professors. And if you, you know, you hang around college professors, you might find out that they don't learn about teaching when they get their degree. If you get a PhD in biology, you learn about biology. And if you want to, you have to seek out good information on how to be a good biology teacher someday. And so I worked at a center that helped faculty learn how to be good teachers. In the middle of all that, I've also taught fourth grade, Montessori school, special education, early childhood special education specifically. So and a lot of variety and experience. That's awesome. Our previous episodes, for those that missed them and are interested, uh, we have season one, episode nine on motivation and self-determination. And in that episode, Jenny kind of defines it, explains what self-determination is. And then season three, episode one, uh, strategies to increase motivation are ideas for classroom teachers to implement on increasing that motivation so that students want to do what we need them to do in the classroom instead of just having to do it. Great episodes. I highly encourage you to go back and check and listen to those if you miss them. And today, wow, almost all of the episodes on our podcast that we've done on how we teach this, we've always been focused on what to do, but we've never really talked about what not to do. So we're going to talk about controlling teaching and that dark side of motivation. And this falls in that realm of what not to do. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. And, and what does that look like? Well, first, just to give you the background, unless you want to, I can tell you to stop and pause and go back and listen to the others. But if you don't have time right now, self-determination theory is the idea that we all have basic psychological needs for autonomy, relatedness, and competence. So we want to feel like we're making choices in our life, that, that we're not, we're not just 
functioning on what we're told to do. We want to have good relationships with people and we want to feel like we're good at stuff. And so the one we focus on a lot in school is the autonomy piece because your average eight-year-old doesn't really get a choice about whether they're going to school or not. So there's a, they're in a situation where there's not a lot of autonomy already. So we want to encourage teachers to provide autonomy support, having them provide choices, um, helping the students learn to value the, the lessons and value what they're learning being patient with the students. And we'll talk more about what the good side looks like in a later, little bit later, but the dark side and control, we see the opposite of autonomy support is control. And um, when we are teaching from a place of control, it can come from our personality. Some of our orientation for control or autonomy it's kind of baked into our personality. So some people may just be maybe people that you might think of as type A people, super organized. You say, I want to do a project. They've got a spreadsheet for you right away. And they're just tightly organized. And, you know, that that's and can be really helpful in some settings. But in the classroom, when we say controlling, we mean, and this comes from an article from Avi Asor and some of his colleagues, the phrase explicit attempts to fully and instantly change the behaviors children presently engage in or in the opinions that they hold. So we talk about directly controlling teacher behaviors. When we come in and we say, stop what you're doing. Everybody, look at me. What's happening in here? Why are you doing this? Go back to your seats. So we need, we are attempting to fully and instantly change their behavior. In this case, we're not even asking what their opinions are or why something happened. Tell me what's going on. And these often come with, like I probably just did, raised my voice, very stern, no nonsense sort of tone. And, um, right. Other ways that this looks like, uh, we may not let kids work at their preferred pace. We may say, okay. Hurry up. Come on. You got to be done with this. Giving directives over and over. Okay. Come on over here. Wait. No, stop. Don't do that. Come here. Or not allowing kids to voice opinions that differ from, from yours. So a student might say, Mrs. Moss, I don't want to do that. I thought we were going to go out for recess early. I might return with, I don't want to hear it, Jason. We're going to finish this lesson now. Go back and sit down. And so those are samples of, of what we would say is directly controlling. Control can also be gradual. When we think of it in the classroom, we are usually trying to get keep order or get control back. Something's happened. <laughs> These are the things that what, what controlling teaching looks like. So we're talking about what we really would like teachers not to do. Yeah. And part of me hesitates that we talk about what not to do, right? Right. We want to role model all the things you're supposed to do, but we really think there's a value in identifying this. Yeah. And so that we can, as a professional, reflect on 
Am I doing things that are controlling? And what are the negative consequences of having that kind of behavior as a teacher in the classroom? We've known that teachers are under a lot of pressure to perform. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's part of that that brings out the controlling. What are your thoughts on how we come into this behavior? Absolutely. Definitely. One of the things we might say in a research study, pressure from above and pressure from below. Not only it might be your personality, but also any one of us are susceptible to behaving in a way that's really controlling if the context leads to that. And there's a lot of different ways that our our contexts um, can lead to that. One of the, the biggest ones is that in the United States, especially, although this is definitely an international trend, in the U.S., controlling teaching is pretty highly valued. And we are one of the most autonomy-supportive teaching cultures in the world. And I have the data. <laughs> but when when we look at it, Controlling teaching is also highly valued. I've heard stories of teachers having someone, come, a principal or an administrator come in for a walkthrough one day, just one of those surprise visits where they walk through your classroom and they look around at what's happening and come over to the teacher and say, oh, I'll come back later when you're teaching. When in reality, The teacher was teaching, the students were doing an active learning activity, and they were in groups, and some of them were on the floor. Oh, my. Yeah, so often relaxed, autonomy-supportive environments can be mistaken for teachers not teaching. So we have this idea that a teacher who's teaching and doing it well is up in front of the classroom has control. I know as a teacher, I remember getting a, getting in trouble because my kids in fourth grade would talk as they walked through the hallways. That wasn't good teaching. When people think about how, oh, you reflect back, you know, as you get older, you start to think about who was a really great teacher. And often, People bring up phrases like, oh, yeah, she did not take any baloney off of anybody. Or he had he had such a great way of keeping order in class. Nobody really got away with anything. That's what we come to come to think as a, a value. And even students today will will praise teachers that aren't afraid to discipline the class. And if you are a student who knows how things are supposed to go and you're compliant and you work hard, it can be pretty nice if you see the students that are not doing the things that they're supposed to do get punished. And that reinforces your own idea that, wow, see, I'm doing it right. So there's a lot of like icky, sticky, emotional stuff tied up. That's a real psychology term that's tied up in this um, idea about controlling teaching. And there's some work uh, from the 1990s. Objective raters were cons- objective raters considered the controlling teachers to be better teachers. 
And um, also we tend, another part of this is that we tend to get control mixed up with structure. I really like that comparison. I think that is a very common misconception. Yeah, because we, right. Because so when we think that when we're providing structure, often we use the phrase imposing structure. And ooh, that sounds pretty controlling. But um, we tend to think that if we're in control, that we're providing the structure but when they talk to students, well, okay, let me let me back up a second. When I say structure, I mean students come in the class the first thing and there's an agenda available for what we're going to do. Oh, some elementary teachers I've known um, in the days maybe before Chromebooks would have the students stack their books under their desks so everything would be in the right order. So we've got structure for what's going to happen. They have clear directions for that high school term paper project with a clear rubric and maybe even some samples of work. And they scaffold the work so the students have check-ins, so they get feedback throughout the process. Those are pieces that I would I would think of as structure. But um, we tend to think control is the same as structure. And um, students will report, though, that they find more structure in classrooms where the teachers are autonomy supportive. Tell us what you mean by autonomy supportive and give me some examples. Probably the biggest thing is that we are taking the student's viewpoint. And I think that that feeds into the idea that there might be more appropriate structure in those classrooms because if I'm thinking about what's going to help the students and what's going to make them most comfortable, then letting them know, okay, here we're first, we're doing this next, we're doing that. And um, we're going to do a project. I'm going to outline it for you. So you know, what's going to happen. And really that's providing structure, but it's also very autonomy supportive because I'm taking the student's viewpoint. Other ways that we can be autonomy supportive are being patient. And sometimes that means saying, wow, all right, well, I had planned today to be a work day for this project, but I can see that, you know, we're partway through class and I think you're going to need more time. So I'm going to reorganize things and I'm going to set up a work day for tomorrow too, rather than halfway through the class period scolding the students for not working fast enough. So I'm being patient. I'm, I give them lots of reasons to value what we're doing and help them develop their kind of their own buy-in. We often want to foster intrinsic motivation and that's great, but it can be really hard to be intrinsically motivated about everything if you're a student. Yeah. So sometimes we like to provide A reason why, a satisfying rationale is the phrase I love to use. I learned that from some researchers I've worked with. And we often will talk about the power of a satisfying rationale. So if somebody tells you really why we need to do something, then you're like, oh, okay, I get it. All right, we can do that. And so those are ways that we can be autonomy supportive. But if we never take the student's point of view, 
then we never really see those. If we're only thinking about it from our point of view, then, then we tend to be more controlling. If I'm more worried about me and what the principal thinks of me and what the parents think of me, I may be tending to be more controlling, keeping things in order. I want the principal to walk by and hear my quiet classroom and see that everybody's working. Another piece to add to that is that it's not, and even between autonomy, support, and control, it's not always what the teacher's doing, but it's how they do it. And I'm a college professor now, so sometimes I need to talk to my students about how you do citations and reference pages and whether or not you copied too much or did you put it in your own words enough. And there would be a really controlling way to do that. Back in the good old days of pen and paper, we would bleed red ink all over everything hand it back and say, you have two days to revise this or you get an F. On the other hand, what I do now is I invite students to visit me in my office. We talk about what happened. We talk about how they can do it better. I make sure that they know what I'm talking about. Some of them look at me and say, well, I really tried, but I don't know what this APA citation thing is. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Why would I get mad at you for not knowing something? We'll make sure we go over it and understand it. That's with more autonomy supportive. Bleeding red ink and making threats, are, are it's more controlling. So in both cases, we're giving feedback and helping make sure the student doesn't do it again. But there's different ways we can accomplish the same goals. Okay, that's really helpful. So some other examples that I know we've talked about in the past that would be considered controlling behavior from a teacher would be like those clip-up charts. Oh, dear, yeah. Names on the board. Yeah. Sending kids out of the room. Can you explain a little bit why those are considered controlling? If all I'm doing is writing a name on the board, how is that the dark side of motivation? <laughs> Okay, I can see when you say it like that, it does feel like a really big leap. But what I think that there's a perspective question, and if you think about it from the teacher's point of view, all you're doing is writing their name, no big deal. You're getting order, people are paying attention again, okay. But that you're taking, you're looking at it from your own perspective where you are trying to recapture that control of the classroom. Maybe they were talking too much or throwing paper airplanes. Oh, wait, kids don't often have as much paper anymore, do they? <laughs> I, I just thought of that because it happens in my college classrooms, too. I'll say, okay, who has paper? Oh, yeah. And like four kids are there ripping pages out of their notebook to share with people. I just bring paper now. <laughs> I have scrap paper with me all the time. But, you know, kids are misbehaving in some way. And so we want to get control back. Yeah, that is often we'll, we'll only look at it from our perspective. And then what I had said earlier that these directly controlling teacher behaviors are an attempt to 
instantly change the behavior. And that's where having a student walk up to the front and move their clip, or in some cases it's a card you flip in a little library pocket on a bulletin board of those or anything like that, even down to things like token economies and taking a token away from a kid, making a mark on his chart that has to go home to his parents at the end of the day. Any of those things are really attempts to instantly change the behavior. And where that gets to become a dark side is that over time, these undermine students' engagement with what's happening in the classroom. And they undermine autonomy, and they're really going to take students away from being engaged in the classroom. They might fake some engagement so they can get, not get in trouble, but that engagement's going to be really superficial, and they're not going to learn as much. And another word that I know I love in education, persist. And if they are feeling controlled, they're less likely to persist. So when things get hard, uh, they don't know what to do. They throw their hands up. I can't do this. Oh, that's so true. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we have that kind of low level engagement or, you know, superficial, um, they aren't learning as much. And you'll see it later on where, oh, a few months down the road, you look at your class and you're like, all right. We covered this in the last unit when we talked about this part of social studies stuff, and they don't remember it because they really didn't learn it. Oh, yeah. So you may find yourself first really frustrated. Why didn't you learn this? And then in order for them to get what you're doing now, you have to go back and reteach it. And if you do it again in a superficial way, you're just feeding the cycle and students are learning less. They're getting less out of the experience of school and this feeling can spread. I think I can understand that. I think I can even visualize that spreading mm -hmm. culture happening. Yeah. Dr. Jenny Moss had so many cool things to share about the dark side of motivation and student engagement that we've broke this conversation into two parts. I hope you'll stay tuned and be sure and subscribe. You won't want to miss the second half of this conversation as we talk more about how motivation affects student engagement in the classroom. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. This podcast is sponsored by the Teachers College at Emporia State University, featuring talks with experts and educators. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. Our guests provide more information on our website, www.emporia.edu slash HWTT. Follow us and share on X with at HWTT underscore ESU. On Facebook and Instagram, search for How We Teach This. If you would like to be a guest on our show or want to provide feedback, please send us an email at hwtt at emporia.edu. I'm Christy Dugan, your host and executive producer. You've been listening to How We Teach This. Thank you 